You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Uh, when they advertised this, I think in a lot of people's minds was, oh, this was this has been going on for... I think at that time, maybe like 15 six, years. 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> I, am I going into something that would take another 15 years? And I'll, you know, so it was, I had to take a leap of faith, but then I, I don't know, something just clicked. I felt like it was going to happen. And I think that was actually one of the key things about the team we had was that we really believed. <laughs> that was Sai Tal Neville. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. For the second episode of our fifth season, yes, you heard that right, our fifth season, and episode 56 if you are counting. I had the pleasure of talking to Sai, who leads fisheries subsidies work at the WTO in Geneva. Sai is passionate about international trade and her work, which is evident when talking to her. You can't help but feel inspired when you listen to her. She has been all over the world, but during the last few years, she's been in Geneva at the WTO. We covered a lot in our conversation, but it also went so fast because she's such a delightful person. Sai is a consummate professional and a true multilateralist. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ah, and we also have a new theme song. Please let me know what you think about it. Subscribe. You won't regret it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help by spreading the word, recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in this conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Good morning, Sai. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No, I'm really excited, and I'm. Uh, I, I. We have a lot of common friends, but I don't think we've really spoken much. So I'm really glad that we can get to do this. Yes, and I see your podcast a lot on social media, and um, you know, you, there's a lot of information out there that you put out, and it's really interesting. So I'm really happy that we finally get to also sit together. Thank you very much. You are originally from where? I'm from the Gambia. And how was it growing up there? So I actually didn't grow up in the Gambia. I, know, I was born in the Gambia, and uh, left when I was two years old. Okay. Um, and we lived in different places: the United Kingdom, because my mother is actually also from the UK, um, in Kenya. Because my Kenya. father worked there, oh, yes, really? actually in the in United Nations Environment Program. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I spent most of my formative childhood years in Nairobi, um, and then we did go back to Gambia um, in my later teens. I was there for two years. My family stayed, and then I moved to Canada for uh, university, my undergrad. So was this like uh, international upbringing, like? Uh what motivated you to have like an international career? Absolutely, I think so. I think, um, you know, um, living in different parts of the world and particularly growing up in an international environment really gave me this international perspective. And I, of course, like many people, I looked up to my father and the work he was doing. He's originally a forester 
And interestingly enough, later in his career, he um, worked on uh, he was responsible for water resources and fisheries at ah. some point. So it's very it was very funny when I started working on fishery subsidies later on that uh, we uh, it seemed as if I just followed in his footsteps, which is not the intention, but it just happened naturally. But um, also, you know, living in an international environment and having this perspective, I was always concerned about not just um, the environment, but also development in general. And I always uh, wanted to see the better of developing countries and, um, you know, mainly living in Nairobi and then living in the Gambia. These were the perspectives I had, and that's what I ended up studying as well. And you, you went to law school, law school in, in... So actually, I started as an economist. Okay. <laughs> I uh, did my undergrad in um, economics at the University of Toronto. And then, actually, I went back to the Gambia and I had a job offer from the Ministry of Trade as a trade economist and worked there uh, for a few years doing trade negotiations, doing trade analysis. Um, at that time, the big thing for us was the ECOWAS um, EU Economic Partnership Agreement. So, and I was, they, I was thrown right into the deep end. They told me to, um, to lead our delegation for the services chapter. And um, after that... Uh, How was that experience? Like you... That was, I was 22 years old. Yeah. And it was my first month at the ministry. It's a very small ministry. We were five people in the trade department responsible for WTO and regional um, agreements. And they said, we have uh, negotiations on services chapter for the ECOWAS EU EPA. Can you please lead the delegation? You leave next week. My first question was, EPA? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> services chapter? I had just come out of undergrad. I'd, I'd studied trade law, um, well, not trade law, trade policy in the economic perspective. And you, know, you learned about the WTO, but I hadn't gone into trade law and the WTO agreement. So I had no idea what I was talking about. It was really a huge learning curve, but I think it was the best thing that happened in my career because it really forced me to get out of my comfort zone and learn really fast on the job. And um, I was quite a challenging negotiator. I asked a lot of questions and I think um, <laughs> Many on the opposite side hated me, because I, but um, no, it was absolutely fantastic. But this was because you were looking at it from like a fresh perspective. Yeah, I didn't know much, so I think all my questions were valid from someone who didn't know much and wanted to really understand what it would mean for my country. Um, so that was um, that was really it was, I, I would say, much more valuable than anything I would have read in university. And like from the perspective of the, the industry, how did you get the feedback for the negotiations? From, well, I mean, what happened at that time, because, so that was the first, the first uh, tranche of, um, of uh, the negotiations. And of course, the negotiations were ongoing, as you know. I think the EPAs are not concluded. <laughs> so um, at least from my perspective, it was very critical to ask questions and um, figuring out, rather than going in um, blind for countries to ask whether or not they were ready and what they were able to, what the give and take would be at that time, particularly for, I mean, Gambia is a tiny country in West Africa. There are a lot, much bigger economies. So not only do we have arrangements within the region, but now we're thinking about a regional block with another regional block and what that would mean for um, a country like ours, which is also mainly a services economy and what, what um, sort of deals we're looking at. So not going in and just thinking, oh yes, 
we should sign, but really, what should we sign? Mm. Um, so, I mean, I left before it was also not concluded, so um, I wouldn't say it was me. <laughs> but, uh, um, what I would say is that um, I guess um, a lot of countries these days are thinking more critically about their trade policy um, and what that could mean um, for the development of their economies. So after this like experience, which really brought you in directly to this, you were like, I, I want to study more or what? what? Yeah, so um, also because I was working a lot on um, WTO issues, I was um, a focal point on a number of um, areas, including SPS, TBT, and Aid for Trade. And I was going to the um, usual WTO regional policy courses. I met a lot of people from the WTO um, during those courses and um, also asking critical questions. Uh, many of those people um, from the Secretariat would uh, have, I'd have discussions with them and they'll say, oh, you should really try to um, come to Geneva and come to the WTO. It might be an interesting career for you. And my response was always that, uh, well, I don't have a master's yet. And time and time again, many of them would say, well, have you looked at the World Trade Institute? Um, they have this program. I Googled it one day and I said, you know what? Let me apply and see what happens. Next thing you know, I was accepted and I went. And I remember saying to those uh, WTO staff, I said, if I do this course, I'm coming to knock at your door <laughs> as soon as I'm done. So um, I finished the mile program and I came straight into the WTO and I knocked on their doors and said, here I am. <laughs> and and the rest is history, yes. This was exactly after the, the experience in the ministry? So it was like the ministry, then the... Yes, the ministry and then WTI. And then I uh, came to WTO. I started... So I took a leave from my job at the ministry, said, let me try WTO out. And of course, um, the thing, what was offered to me was an internship. So I said, okay, I'll take leave from work, do the internship. And um, of course, whilst it might seem like a step back, I said, it was a great opportunity to learn from an institution. Um, so I interned, I first started interning with um, the then DDG Valentin Rugubitsa mm -hmm. and worked a lot on development aid for trade issues. And then it was during the time when it was the last year of um, the Pascal Lamy uh, administration. So then um, during the transition, I was offered a short term at the development division with the Aid for Trade unit. And then I was lucky enough that there was a job opening. I applied, but I had left the WTO and I start, started working for UNDESA on a project that um, in the end, uh, created the e-ping system at uh, the ah, TBT. Yes. Yeah, so a very um, useful system. Yeah, so we were the ones that conceptualized it um, at that time. And um, whilst I was doing that project, then I received the call from the WTO that I received a, a job at the Aid for Trade unit. Let me go back a bit. Uh, how was your experience? Because usually, people go to do their masters like right after finishing their mm -hmm. undergrad or their degree. Yeah, and they don't have the experience. But for your, in your case, it was you already had like hands-on experience, and how was it? Like, was it more useful? Were you asking different questions? How, how was your approach to studying in in one of the best institutions for for this type of things, but with the experience? Yeah, no, that was. I found that it was extremely useful coming with already some work experience. I mean, our class you could say was split between. You did have people with. Uh, coming directly from their undergraduate, as you say, or from another master's degree, and others that did have careers already. And what, at least in my experience, I found that the ones that already had a career are the ones that I learned, that, that's where I learned a lot from. Mine, the professors were amazing and everything, but to be able to also converse with your 
classmates that do also have, they can bring in the experiences that they've had um, from their regions and from, and most of them were definitely from the trade area as well, um, whether it was um, IP or something else. So um, that really enriched the program. And also to add, I think what was really um, important, I found even coming in as an intern at the WTO, because what I found was that you had some interns that came in with um, experience like myself and then others that didn't. And I found that it really gave you a competitive edge if you had at least some experience, because then you can be seen as someone that could then also apply directly not too long after. And um, they really valued um, someone coming with, with some experience as well. I felt like that really helped me to then get a job probably a bit uh, faster than others that may not have had the experience, because you do need some experience um, before, even for the entry level. And uh, how was it like to be in the WTO as an intern and then go out and then come back? Like, did you see the WTO? What were some of the things that you learned outside in the other organization? Then maybe you were like, oh, maybe these are things that we can do in the WTO. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, what was so great about the project I was working with you and Dessa was that it was really hands-on on the practicalities of trade, restrictions for developing countries. So the project was looking at, you know, how what they called international support measures or let's say flexibilities in the WTOs do or do not help least developed countries integrate better into multilateral trading system. So for example, our first project in Uganda was to identify with the farmers um, some of the bottlenecks they faced in accessing, let's say, EU market. And um, what we found was that um, by far, SPS and TBT measures were um, the biggest bottleneck, not on the tariff side. And after that, thinking about how can we make it easier for them to meet SPS and TBT requirements. So really, something practical. We have the WTO law, and then we have the, um, those that have to abide by the WTO law, but then what is the middle? Ensuring that they're able to connect to the WTO law and realize that actually what you're talking about is WTO law, because many of them don't know that there's this big organization in Geneva that is regulating mm. um, these issues that you're facing. So that's how the EPING system was created to say, how do we link farmers to notifications on SPS or TBT so that they know in real time that their coffee may face a new regulation from a major market that they have to enter. And that they are able to also communicate with their governments or focal points of those markets um, in case there are any, any issues. So um, I found that extremely, I mean, that was very different from the work in the WTO because at the WTO it's quite uh, macro. Um, we're looking really more at the policy. So um, coming back to the WTO and coming with that experience, um, it also helped me, especially in aid for trade, try to put myself in the shoes of the person that has to use these rules and really think about what they mean for them and how the system can better assist them to be able to benefit from our rules. So you seem, you seem to have um, experience with a lot of the aspects of the WTO activity, the fisheries, aid for trade. I think that this broad perspective of the organization puts you in a unique place to, to see the WTO perhaps in a different way than other people. Do you see that? You know what I, it's so interesting because I remember having a conversation with um, colleagues and friends and 
the age-old question, is it better to be a specialist or a generalist, <laughs> right? And at least in my perspective and my experience, I felt that it has highly benefited me, not just in terms of career development, but also in the way I look at substance, being more of the so-called generalist, that I already find that the trade field is already so niche. It's, yeah. um, you know, if you look at it in the grandest scheme of the world, it's such a niche area. And things are always evolving, you know, um, in, just within trade. So we have to be adaptable. If, you know, uh, if members want us to talk about a specific t topic, we, pe we, the secretariat has to be liquid enough to be able to deal with those issues. My personal opinion is that many of our functions are not rocket science. And just like any other civil service, if you're called on to work on something because that's where the demand is, we should be able to do that. And I feel as if, at least for me, um, this perspective of being able to adapt where the work is needed has been extremely valuable and also given me, has helped me really grow intellectually in this area. And what about Aid for Trade? Um, how was your experience in Aid for Trade? And oh, what I'm, did you do there? <laughs> yeah, no, Aid for Trade was my first real job <laughs> at the WTO. And uh, no, it was fantastic because I think the, and this is where it comes back to the generalist. I think the really good thing about working on Aid for Trade is that you have to work with multiple stakeholders, whether it's um, multilateral development banks, uh, donor agencies um, from, the, um, from donor countries, or, um, for, uh, or the, the partners themselves, the beneficiaries. Um, and you have to work on a wide range of topics. So this year it could be on environment, next year it could be on gender, the following year it could be on agriculture. You know, so you have to basically also be knowledgeable about these different aspects. So um, I think it was a really good starting point for me. So at the Aid for Trade, uh, I was part of a key member of the Aid for Trade unit. Um, and um, near the end of my time, I worked there for six years and near the end of the time I was deputy coordinator. This was before I moved to, um, to work on fishery subsidies and basically working on um, the whole implementing the Aid for Trade work program, including the global reviews of Aid for Trade, um, the various um, activities during the year, all the research and analysis um, that comes with it and the questionnaires that we disperse to uh, members and other stakeholders. And at, at what point did you decide, like, I want to move somewhere else? What was your, the, the, the thought behind it? The trigger? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm not sure if it was, oh, now is the time to move somewhere, but it was more of the right thing came along. And um, like, I always knew that I will not be one of those people that would stay in one spot for 20 years. And for some people love that, but I knew that, you know, I like to be um, quite dynamic. But it, it had to be the right fit that came along the way. I wouldn't just move for anything. And um, I remember when um, there was a, a call, an expression of interest um, to work on fishery subsidies. I remember the first time I saw it, I think I was very busy and I, I didn't pay much attention. But then um, the director had spoken to a number of staff just explaining what it was. And I, and I said, oh, this actually sounds really interesting. I think at that time, nobody knew that nobody really expected things to go very far. So maybe um, I was also lucky that, um, that, um, that it was really, you know, things were only starting to pick up. Uh, and uh, when I, I spoke to the director, I just felt everything clicked. It just felt right. And um, I'd always wanted to go in, into the environmental side of, I had studied some environmental economics and I was really interested in that. So I thought, oh, this could be 
an interesting avenue. Of course, I was um, nervous about the leap because it would have been a huge le learning curve. Um, you know, subsidies is already a very technical area. Right. And then on top of that, fishery subsidies. But um, I have to say it was one of the best career moves I'd made after what happened at the ministry. Well. <laughs> and did you, because this is coming like full circle to what you were saying earlier about your father. Yeah. Did you discuss this uh, at one point and was like, oh, I'm going to be doing this. <laughs> yes. And it was uh, when I told him I, I, that um, I'm thinking of moving to do this, the, he first laughed as like, like, father like daughter. I'm like, do not say that. <laughs> it's like, I make my own decisions. <laughs> but um, no, he was extremely proud because he's really passionate about the environment. I mean, that's his whole career. And in fact, at that time, he had just retired from his previous um, post and he was helping Senegal bid for the World Water Forum. So he was, it was like, that was his last project. So um, it was really nice to also talk to him about his experience and you know we come from a country that is also fishing nation and saying you know he worked in the Gambia as well and saying oh yeah so how how was it and what was really interesting was that even though he was really in this field he had no idea that this was happening at the WTO mm. so um, it, that was also an eye-opener for me that we kind of live in this small bubble and yeah, <laughs> and um, the masses um, don't really understand what we're doing or how important it is the work we're doing until I explained what we were trying to do and he was very impressed with the work that we were going to do. And you were talking about how it was it seemed a bit daunting to change as a career uh, move for you but perhaps also because the fisheries negotiation was ongoing for a long time yeah didn't you see like oh my god like Where am I going to? Like <laughs> exactly, and that's what I meant by ah, okay. when when um, when uh, uh, when they advertised this. I think in a lot of people's minds was oh, this was this has been going on for, I think at that time maybe like 15 six, years. 15 yeah. years. <laughs> I, am I going into something that would take another 15 years? And I'll you know. So it was. I had to take a leap of faith. But then I, I don't know. Something just clicked. I felt like it was going to happen. And I think that was actually one of the key things about the team we had was that we really believed. <laughs> I think that's necessary, no? Yeah. Because you cannot go to something and accomplish it without like believing. So yeah. you have to have the belief. Exactly. So you had that. Everyone yeah. in the team had. Yeah, everybody in the team, all the way from the chair to, and, and I would say particularly these last few years, I've seen a huge shift. I mean, when DG Ngozi came in and when DG Ellen came in, also you saw that the leadership of the organization believed. And once you have everybody from the top to the bottom believing, you know, then magic can happen. I just felt everybody was in it. And um, we had believed already for, for a few years, but then to also then get the icing on the cake was um, really remarkable. And I think um, the members started also believed. I think it, it just kind of became contagious. And, um, and um, that's why we got what we did. Of course, it's not perfect, but It's a start. It's a really good start. And I, at least, I continue believing. I think you have to, in this kind of a role, you have to always remain optimistic and believe in what you do. And I do um, believe in this work. And I'm, I do believe that we will, you know, make an impact one way or another through implementation or further negotiations or whatever. And I think that's the attitude that anyone has to have or any team has to have to succeed. But you were talking about believing and how things changed, but also during the, that period from 2018 to now, there was like, I think it changed from 
a lot. It was very, I don't know how to put it, like, but the atmosphere, but sometimes it looked, it could be doable and sometimes no. Yeah. How did that affect you? Like, you always remain positive and... Yeah, you have to have really strong willpower. You have to understand that, of course, in the beginning it was tough because, um, you know, you see the ups and the downs and when the downs go really down, to pick yourself up again, it's really tough. So you always have to keep a longer term perspective. Mm. You can't take what happens today as the end all. You have to say, okay, we will get past this, you know, these past few years you see. I think every, the world has experienced so much and um, I, I think the biggest learning lesson is just keep going and find creative ways to keep going every, despite all that's happening. And um, we made sure that we kept our doors open and our um, uh, work going no matter what. I remember I had gone on maternity leave um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I had my child, I think, two weeks after the whole lockdown. And I came back. And actually, talking about degrees, then I did a law degree in yeah, fine. Actually, and, I was going to yeah. that. So it seems like a lot happened during this period. Yes. <laughs> so don't ask me why uh, <laughs> I decided to do an LLM, an information technology law. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yes. And that was, um, I started that actually when I was still working at Aid for Trade. And then I moved to fisheries. But I said, I have to finish this. So this was, uh, the great thing about this LLM was that I could do it um, via correspondence. It's with the University of Edinburgh and they have a really good distance LL, uh, law program. And um, I was determined to finish it. And then um, I got pregnant and I had all my plans laid out that it's okay, my mother will come, my mother-in-law, my father, my father-in-law, they'll come. I have a whole support system because my thesis was due, I think, 2020 September. And then the lockdown happened. Nobody could come. We were having a baby. Wow. And I remember lockdown happened end of March, our baby came, and I had to submit my um, thesis outline in April. And so I had this four week old trying to get milk and me trying to submit. <laughs> so um, I, I did all of that, I submitted, and I came back to work in September. And I remember walking into the building and it was like a, a new world. You know, we, I think other than the fish team, there were a few other Teams, of course, including the Interprify team because everything was being done on, online. But it, it, we almost felt like we were, um, we were in this desert of a building um, with a few other people and we... Yeah, because you were doing consultations, but you, you had to be here. Uh, yeah, we here. had to actually be in the building present to be able to man the infrastructure required to make sure that everybody could participate online. So we, I think we were amongst the first Um, at least when I was in maternity, we were amongst the first to actually have online negotiations. Our chair was relentless. He said, we have to find a way. So we found creative ways and we made it happen. As you know, we were able to have a virtual ministerial Yeah, I was going to well. ask you about that. So, like, it seems that everything happened with you. <laughs> Child, <laughs> LLM, virtual ministerial, like, everything all at once. Yeah. But I want to talk about the LLM, because I also did an LLM on information technology. Oh, How, interesting. Yeah. How do you... Because you're working in, in right now in fisheries, but like you said, like you want to see everything. But what are some of the things that you learned in this LLM that perhaps you think that they're relevant or can apply to right now your current work? Yeah, I mean, first of all, because I think it was really good. That, I mean, of course, topic-wise, they're completely different topics. But the fact that it was, you know, 
an LLM, I was doing legal analysis, I think was also extremely important because I came from more of an economic background. Of course, the mile I did some law courses, but I think the value of doing the LLM was also to give me this ability to also apply some legal thinking to the work we do because, I mean, we know a lot of the rules work is quite legal and also before you can understand fishery subsidies, you have to understand subsidies. And um, a lot of what we did as the Secretariat um, in assisting members was drafting and you know, um, helping them draft the provisions for the agreement. So I think the LLM really, really helped just on the practical side of things as well. Um, of course, you know, um, at least um, from our perspective right now on fisheries, you know, there isn't really that much of a link but um, you know, just understanding where the world is going in terms of trade um, is useful irrespective of where you work within the Secretariat or where you work within trade. We have to all keep up to date um, with um, the trends. But I'm sure that in the future you'll see, you'll see it back and you'll see like, ah, I had this and this helped to do whatever. Exactly, maybe I haven't seen it yet. And what about you? <laughs> well, I, I, I studied this because this is what I wanted to do and right now maybe it's related a bit to the e-commerce negotiations mm -hmm. but like you I don't know maybe in the future I'll see why why I yeah. <laughs> but um, the ministerial that you're talking like it seems that fisheries was it was probably the flagship uh, outcome of the previous ministerial and it seems that the organization puts a lot of of importance to it is there a bit of pressure on you? Oh yes, it? of course. <laughs> you know, um, there's the pressure of, um, well, because the work is not done yet. You know, we have a mandate to um, to uh, continue negotiating and to come up with some sort of recommendations and or con and conclude those negotiations by MC uh, 13, which now we have a date and it's not too far. So the clock is ticking. So I'm already having some PTSD <laughs> <laughs> that I'm feeling that um, the few months leading up to um, the ministerial, there'll be a lot of pressure on us, a lot of pressure on the members to deliver something. You know, of course, we're also, minus the negotiations, we're also working on implementation. So uh, many members are right now also prioritizing the entry into force. So they're working on their domestic um, procedures for that. Um, so that's also another avenue. And we're also, you know, um, doing the uh, normal WTO implementation side, uh, which is, uh, at, for now, we're doing regional workshops on fishery subsidies where we're going to re um, the regions and explaining the agreement, walking them through it so that by the time we reach entry into force, um, you know, there's, there are people within the ministries of trade and fisheries that um, understand what, what is going on and, um, and would be able to implement. Also, helping them right now in terms of follow-up, in terms of the domestic uh, acceptance processes. That's where we are. And of course, once it comes, um, enters into force, we have the committees. So, and before the committee could be established, we have to come up with the rules and procedures. So there'll be a lot of work for members to, um, to do, between, um, whether it's negotiations or implementation. And um, it's going to be an exciting few years, I think. Uh, something that I, I didn't ask, but I want your, to hear your thoughts on it, is that you, you did uh, the studies uh, like, uh, physically at uh, Bern, yeah. but also the distance learning. In my experience, because I also have done two, when I did the distance learning, I, I seemed to be like, more efficient. Because like, I, have, 
have many obligations and you had to you had to really not waste time when perhaps before you did I wouldn't call it wasting time but yeah. <laughs> you and the same that I felt I felt that all of the students who were doing it were the same so we were all really focused on the task at hand and this seems to be like also I don't know if it's what you experienced and uh, maybe you can talk about that absolutely definitely much more efficient I think first much more mature yeah with much more experience and definitely much more efficient because you're right you know we have jobs uh, home obligations everything and everybody else doing the distance LLM is in the same situation that's why they're doing it distance as well you know um, so everybody was very focused without a doubt I performed way better in my distance LLM than I did in my physical just because um, yeah, there was no time to waste. And I take that also for career. I found that um, once I had a family, I was also a better, a better um, colleague, a better, a more efficient uh, professional just because, yes, there wasn't much time to procrastinate. And can you tell me from your perspective how you, how you experienced uh, the ministerial, uh, the last ministerial? Because for me, it was like, a range of emotions, a range of everything uh, happening in a very small window. Yeah. How did you experience it? Oh, my experience <laughs> was crazy because <laughs> I went into the ministerial, the first day of the ministerial, running around with our ministerial facilitator, who was the uh, minister from New Zealand, doing bilaterals with uh, some key members just to kind of give him an overview of where things were, doing the usual trying to organize everything. And then I got COVID. Really? Yes. <laughs> so I, got, I caught COVID two days before our director had caught COVID. So, and then I caught COVID. And then obviously everybody freaked out because we said, what if then the whole fish team caught COVID, the chair caught COVID, the minister facilitator caught COVID, then we'd be screwed pretty much. So um, luckily it was just myself and the director. But we were in such a rush. I, my experience from then on was in my bed with computer screens and basically being teleported from one room to the next. So we were actually helping in the ministerial from our beds. You know, whenever there was maybe like a half an hour moment, I'll go take some drugs, pass out, wake up, and I'll say, okay, what's next? <laughs> and so that was my COVID experience, which was a very surreal experience. So by the, but then by the time it was the end of the um, ministerial, because it was extended, yeah. then we were done with the quarantine, the, the, the time that we were supposed to stay away. And I made it, I rushed to the WTO at 3 a.m. in the morning. And on the, was it uh, on the Friday? Third, Friday? The third, yeah, Friday morning. Yeah, Friday. Exactly. I rushed to the WTO. I was like, I'm, I can come now. So I, I was like, I need to be there for the gaveling. Like, and, and I think it was only at that time when people were like, it looks like it would happen. Yeah, and I think the, uh, yeah. Three, it was yeah, 3 a.m. <laughs> it was at 3 a.m. And yeah. I was like, I could jump in my car and I can run to the WTO. So I came to the WTO and at least then I was able to see that we had an agreement. So I was like, huh. Thank goodness, and um, I cheers with my team um, in front of the lake, and went home at seven, and passed out for two days. <laughs> and how do you how do you explain? Because this has been like a big part of your life for the past few years, 
I imagine that you talk about this a lot <laughs> to other people. <laughs> yes. How do you talk to them about it, like people who are not, uh, because I do this a lot to, I have friends who are not involved in trade and I have to explain what I do, but yeah. I'm curious to see how you talk to people who are not in trade and yeah. explain what you but, do, this, uh, the, the ministerial agreement, all of this. Yeah, you know, it's what's really fascinating for me is when I put it in the perspective of fisheries and what happens in fishing waters, people are, the general population is so knowledgeable. It's the trade part that they're, they don't understand. So if I go to somebody and I say, oh, you know that you know, um, the fish stocks are depleting. They're like, yes, there's all these big industrial fishing boats that, so they, they will tell me the whole story about their country. They'll say, just look at our shores, look at all these foreign boats. Ooh, I'm like, ah, okay. So they're, they're, they're aware of the problem. So I say, well, do you know that at the WTO, um, members are negotiating that even if there's foreign boats coming in, that they have to be responsible. And then they say, oh, really? That would be really good. Does it mean that it may reduce the, 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 them exploiting our resources? I was like, that's the intention. And then they get really excited. So I think at least putting it from that perspective, it helps rather than say, oh, do you know we're trying to eliminate subsidies that contribute to, then they will, you know, It doesn't make any sense to them. Um, so bringing it back to what they can relate to. And I think one thing that we have been working on, which um, has been extremely useful, is figuring out a way to communicate what we're doing to the general mass in very simple terms and in very realist, real world scenarios. I mean, one project that I'm currently working on, and hopefully um, it will come into fruition, Um, is um, calling, it's called Stories from the Ocean. Mm -hmm. So every time we go um, on a mission somewhere, uh, let's go talk to fishermen and women and um, get some anecdotes from them and then come back with a full story of their experience with um, fishing. I just did that for Fiji, have a very interesting story and we're working with our colleagues in um, the media relations to see how uh, we can make something useful out of, out of this and make a series out of it so that we can um, really um, have better communication tools. And I mean, I don't, I don't get a sense that you're slowing down, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if you can talk about like some of the plans that you have for the, for the future. Well, it's so funny because one of my New Year's resolutions was, let's try to have a bit more family time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's always good, yeah. yeah. I said, I'm giving myself one resolution. <laughs> um, yeah, because it has been really, fast paced, but you know, the, the problem is that I love my work. So it's really hard to just say, I'm going to take a step back because I see so much potential in what we can do for, you know, members, but also for people. Um, I mean, people are our members, they pay the, the taxes. So um, I can like, you know, my mind races as I think about the future work in um, fishery subsidies, but also in the longer term, the work of this organization. I really do believe that we can be a force for good and we can do that. Of course, we're a member-driven organization and members will decide in, in the end um, where the organization would go. But I think that, that, that we do have a really, really um, big role to play in this world and a good role to play. And um, as the secretariat, all we can do is try our best And at least from my side and with the work I'm doing right now on fishery subsidies, I really do see a lot of potential um, going forward. Well, like, like, I think that your passion is infectious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I can already like, feel 
when I talk about the WTO, I want to reach that level of passion, but I don't know if I do it. But, uh, I'm but sure, no, but I think you are too. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> because like listening to you, like I, I just like want to get out and conclude an agreement right now. <laughs> uh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it has it has been great uh, hearing you and hearing like your story about how you got interested in in these topics and how you followed your your dream and you are actually doing it. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say before closing? No, I guess in closing, and I didn't realize that the conversation would go like this, but I think it made me realize, and you just used the right word, dream, that I have, I've, I feel extremely ble blessed that I've been able to live out my dream. I really do feel like I am living out my dream, and I'm really happy um, with what I'm doing, and I really hope that others can feel that sense of fulfillment in whatever they do. I think that's the most important Um, thing with anybody looking at their career. Don't look at it as just a job. It's part of your life. You spend most of your time at the office. So do what you love. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful and blessed that that's the situation I'm at. I think I can, I can, I can honestly see that, that you are. So I'm also really happy for you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. This was the What All For Drivers Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it? Just after the dawn